It's 11.18 p.m. on August 12, 2021, and Lieutenant Colonel Jake Helgestad is in his sleeping quarters in a base in Kuwait. It's hot outside, and even with air conditioning inside, it had taken him a while to get where he was. I'm in a dead sleep. I hear the knock, knock, knock. Like every trained soldier. I jump out like, oh crap, I overslept. Every army soldier's fear, I overslept. So I go to open the bathroom door to like tell Sergeant Major, just give me a minute, I gotta get dressed. Give me a minute, I gotta get dressed. And so again, I'm standing there, you know, I'm in my, my underwear, like, and my heart sank because my wake-up criteria was death of a soldier. The commander had spent his entire career doing whatever he could to protect his troops. Was this the time he had failed them? I opened the door and there's my officer major. Mind you, this is all about 10 seconds. And he's like, hey, sir, we got to go to Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. We have 24 hours. And I remember staring at him going, what? Because then it was the fog of deep REM sleep. Like, oh, okay. Colonel Helgestat quickly realized what was actually happening. He got dressed, left and went to his office, ready to pull off what to many would seem an impossible task. Approximately 24 hours later, we had 625 soldiers that were ready to go to flow into Kabul. I'm Carrie Varohaikis, and welcome to Army Matters. August 2021 saw the end of America's longest war as troops helped evacuate over 100,000 Americans, allies, and locals. Each company and battalion there played key roles, and some teams more than pulled their weight in the process. Commander Jake Helgestad's 1st Battalion, 194th Armor Regiment from the Minnesota National Guard was one of those latter companies. Not only did they deploy within the 24 hours requested, but used their expertise on the ground to help clear the runways and aid the locals. In today's episode, post-Colonel retired Scott Halstead sits down with Helgestad to talk about the years of preparation for that late night deployment the memorable moments from the two-week mission, and also how a good science fiction military thriller is sometimes exactly what you need in times of stress. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Colonel Retired Scott Halstead, and welcome to today's episode. Joining me is Lieutenant Colonel Jake Helgestad, who recently commanded the 1st Battalion, 194th Armor Regiment from the Minnesota Army National Guard. In August 2021, the battalion rapidly deployed from Kuwait to Afghanistan to help secure Hamid Karzai International Airport, playing a significant role in the evacuation of 124,000-plus American citizens, NATO allies, and vulnerable Afghan partners. Jake, welcome to the show. uh, Thank you, Scott. Jake, I'm so excited to have this conversation. We've been trying to link up and record this podcast for about nine months I'm excited to learn more about your leaders, your soldiers, and the historic mission that you participated in. The Chief of Staff of the Army, General McConville, describes readiness as organizations that are highly trained, disciplined, and fit. And that certainly describes your organization, but you had a few challenges prior to your deployment to the Middle East. For one, your unit is geographically spread across the state of Minnesota. Two, 
some of your training was interrupted by COVID. And then lastly, after the murder of George Floyd, your battalion got deployed to the Twin Cities to help secure the area. And so I guess my question for you is, how did you as a leader and how did your organization remain ready for a really important deployment? So as far as the challenges, I took command in June of 2019 and I, we knew we were deploying. So we had you know two and a half years approximately to prepare for the deployment itself. But then we had COVID-19. So that started April to May of 20. So we lost approximately three months on our platforms. And then you had the May DISCA, the Defense Support of Civil Authority, uh, with the riots in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We were task organized to the city of St. Paul, but we were preparing to go to NTC in July of 20. We had about 35 days of packing for NTC that we undid in about three hours, did our uh, support to St. Paul for about six days, put everything back into the containers in three to four days, and approximately two le- weeks later, our Advon left to NTC, and I left about three weeks. And then finally, NTC itself. I was thinking about this as a challenge, and the restrictions we put on ourselves because of COVID you know, were the infancy of the pandemic. But we left a lot of people, leaders, uh, back here in Minnesota because we just excused them from going. So we were constantly retask organizing. So those challenges, though, did increase everybody's confidence because people were thrown into positions that they were not normally expected to do. We had to put people into positions that they normally wouldn't be there. My engineer officer became a battle captain. He's like, sir, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, you're a captain. You'll figure it out. He ended up being my battle captain in Kuwait. Jake, as you know, trust is the bedrock of the Army profession and really the glue that helps units face and overcome adversity. But it sounds like your unit had strong trust relationships, and that was probably a huge contributing factor to your success. One of the things I had always said was you have to trust yourself and trust each other. I used that slogan coaching my son's hockey team, telling 12-year-olds, like, hey, you got to trust each other. And it, it applies in the military too. But there are lots of people that stood out. One specifically was uh, Captain Chloe Carlson. Her husband was one of my company commanders. No trillion, dual military. They wanted to get on the same deployment cycle. So she was post military intelligence company command for the brigade. She was going to go as one of my LNOs to the division headquarters. When we first got to Fort Bliss, uh, when we mobilized, I had two different O4s that were going to be my S3s. They didn't pass through the SRP process. So I'm two and a half weeks into a task force deployment and I don't have an S3. So I had known Chloe for years and she's an MI post-company command. And she woke up one morning, we met and I'm like, listen, Chloe, you're my S3 of the entire task force. So that was approximately March 21st through June 15th. So she she was the S3 of the task force. And there was maybe some friction initially, but I made sure everybody understand, listen, Chloe's in charge when I'm not around. So all of our platoon gunnery that we did at Fort Bliss, and when we moved in the theater, it was going in on a combat footing. Like, listen, we need to be ready because this is our responsibility. So she managed all of that. So kind of going back to trust and cohesiveness of teams, you have a female non-combat arms MI officer who was the S3 of an armored mech task force of a thousand soldiers going in the Middle East. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, the battalion operations officer is sort of 
between the commander and the command sergeant major spends the most time with those senior leaders. It's remarkable that Captain Chloe Carlson, who's a military intelligence officer and a captain, steps up and then, you know, within this great organization thrives and leads your your task force through all the hard training that preceded in Kuwait that preceded, you know, all the things you could do uh, across the Middle East. And I would add with that too is she was the person that I needed at that point in time. If we were going into actual ground combat, I would not have put her there because she just didn't have the experience. Because we spent a lot of time in my office on a whiteboard talking through tactics of Bradleys and tanks together. Right. But at that point in time, she was the perfect person for what I needed her to do or I needed that position to do. So she was successful because I didn't ask something of her that she wasn't institutionally taught to do. Right. But she just took her basic leadership to let everybody through it. Jake, your battalion deployed from Minnesota to the Middle East in March 2021. Can you describe the myriad roles across multiple countries that your soldiers accomplished? Yes. Uh, so we went in as the theater mech armored response force. And then we also had some security force. We went into theater with nine companies and about a thousand people. And that included all the sustainment, the maintenance support teams. And those Bradleys then did patrols in Syria. Over the course of the deployment, I was able to rotate three different company commanders up there and three different mech infantry platoons, and then also maintainers. The key takeaway, and the one statistic that I, I sort of brag about, is those six Bradleys drove 38,000 miles in the nine months that we were there. Wow. Yes, some of them broke down. And then we had to learn how do you resupply uh, your Bradleys and your equipment into Syria because everything had to get flown by the Air Force. So actually, when we first got there, I gave like 15 AAMs to a bunch of Air Force kids who helped load our Bradleys. And when I talked to their commander later on, some of them wore them for days. I mean, for me, I'm right. like, it's an AAM. Like, okay. But that initial step created this incredible relationship that allowed us to get parts into Syria to maintain the battle rhythm. It kind of goes back to the opportunities that I mentioned about the sustainment infrastructure. And we've seen in the, the current world, sustainment in a mech armor force, if you do not have that down, you're not going anywhere. So that was our mission overall. As we heard at the beginning of this episode, you got alerted to rapidly deploy from Kuwait to Kabul. Did you have any advanced warning? Did you personally anticipate the mission? Or was it really a complete surprise? No, we actually did have warning. I was able to send my planner, one of my uh, company first sergeants, and my S6 back into Kabul. So we kind of already had to lay it land. Okay. But then there was also a new commander on the ground, and he put a constraint on you cannot get into Afghanistan unless you were vaccinated. So it was me and a whiteboard trying to figure out with my staff, like, okay, how do we retask organize based on this constraint? And I had stated every platoon leader or platoon sergeant, that would be the anchor we would build platoon against. They both had to be vaccinated. So we started that planning, but we accepted some risk. And we had a be prepared to mission that actually ended Friday the 13th. At that point, 3rd Brigade was supposed to be uh, fully operational. So in some sense, we shouldn't really be talking because we really shouldn't have had this mission, but we got it by about 25 hours. So when we officially got notified, 
Within 24 hours, I had 625 soldiers across five companies that was ready to go. And were you ready to go yourself? Even when I first moved in and I'm showing my wife, like, hey, here's where I live. Her first statement is, why is your stuff packed by the door? Because she's an army wife. She knows if you're rocking your body armors by the door, like that's, that's our job. So once we pushed the button to go, it was organized chaos. Everybody had a specific job. The sustainers and our support section went and got all of our three days of supply of food, water. It takes a long time to actually load uh, 210 rounds into seven magazines, but we had all of that. And within 24 hours, again, we had 625 soldiers ready to go. That speaks volumes as to the discipline and readiness of both you and your organization. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we get back, we'll find out what happened to Jake and his team from the Minnesota Army National Guard once they arrived in Afghanistan. Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits. From car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit AUSA.org benefits to learn more. We're back and speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Jake Helgestat about his experiences in Afghanistan. Now, Jake, let's talk about when your unit arrived to Hamid Karzai International Airport. What was it like? And what do you remember about that moment? Yes. So before we even landed, I was up in the cockpit with C-17. So we landed in Qatar to get gas. So we're sitting in Qatar on Monday night, August the 16th. And I remember four year, or six Eurofighters taking off simultaneously, and I'm right next to the tarmac, and they got all their missiles underneath them. When we landed, also a B-52 landed. So that was kind of the moment where I'm like, oh, okay, this is for real. This isn't just an exercise. And then as we're on approach into Kabul, it goes to red light. There is a picture that I took of a U.S. flag, and behind it are all the soldiers. So I'm like, oh, this is just one of those moments, like you can never uh, replicate this. So I'm in the front seat of this. I've got that picture right in front of me, by the way. Yeah. It's amazing. As soon as the plane touched down, this lady's voice, all you hear is missile launch, missile launch. And I'm like, we've been here one second. And the co-pilot just reaches up, pushes a button and turns it off. And so that was my introduction to Kabul of the planes telling us there's a missile launch. And I just, some lieutenant from the Air Force just turned off and we just land. Right. So... It's about two in the morning on the 17th, a Tuesday, when we landed in Kabul. So when we landed, we're getting off the plane in the middle of the night, like, okay, what's going to happen here? And the 82nd was there to meet us. So uh, I get off the plane. They take us to, they kind of in process this. They take us to two hangars. They were just aircraft hangars. And they're like, here, here's where you're going to live. But they were there to meet us because we're like, we have no idea what's going to happen. And that was zero two, let's say. I had to meet Colonel Kleisner, uh, Teddy Kleisner, who was the commander of 1st Brigade 82nd at 6.30. So in that three and a half hours, approximately uh, four and a half hours, we just kind of got situated. I mean, it's the middle of the night. My first impressions were all of the gunfire. Periodically, you'd see the tracers. And then if I remember this night, every half hour, there was a fighter jet that just roared over the city right down the middle of the runway. And it was low enough you could see the afterburners. And so that was the welcome to Kabul of being meted, shown to the concrete where you're going to live the next two weeks. 
the constant gunfire and fighter jets roaring overhead. That's a pretty vivid picture. Wow. Okay, so you're on the ground. It's two in the morning. I mean, did you send your battalion out to do any type of security missions, or were you waiting to link up with Colonel Kleisner before you got your marching orders in terms of how your battalion would be employed? Yep, we were just waiting. I got three hours to meet the brigade commander, and then who knows when I'm going to sleep, which goes back to what I was talking about. NTC taught us, like, we knew there was a backstop, I think, of 31 uh, August for us to leave. Right. Okay, that's two weeks. That was our box time at NTC. But we have to be able to endure and, and conduct operations that entire time. So it was just bed down, go to sleep the best you can, and then meet Colonel Kleisner at the dining facility at between 6 and 6.30. Okay. That was when he gave us our uh, mission. It's so important for leaders to assess themselves and their units to make sure they continue to get better after each event. So, Jake, what went right and what went wrong? Did you learn any leadership lessons in Afghanistan? Is there anything that you would have done differently? Um, so, for the actual mission, I don't know. And what I mean is we had prepared for everything the fact that they were able to get enough MREs and waters for 600 people and all the ammunition in under 24 hours, uh, are there things to improve? Yes, but they would be very micro. The chaos that ensued when we were initially notified getting into theater, I don't know if we could have done it better and we would be nitpicking because we did accomplish what we were tasked to do in the amount of time, then flowing in and then flowing back out too. Then Major General Donahue, the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division, he and I have known each other for well over three decades. He was very effusive in his praise of you, your command sergeant major, and your unit. And that just speaks volumes because you're a combined arms battalion. So Jake, everybody I've talked to that was on that airfield has some very vivid and often visceral memories of, of that important mission. Is, is there anything, any event or any person that you're like, wow, that's what I'm going to talk to my family about when I get back to Minnesota. That that's really going to stick with me for the rest of my army career. I remember one conversation they were talking about the plumbing was going out in camp Alvarado. And I'm like, Hey, I, I got a plumber and they kind of look at me silly. I'm like, no, I got a dude who owns a plumbing company. And so they're, I think it was their ops guy. He's like, wow, you like, we got these skills to shoot people in the face, but you guys got like life skills. I'm like, listen, Sergeant Major, I'll shoot you in the face with a saber round at 4,000 rounds and I'm going to fix your plumbing. Sure. So when we got to Kabul, we had no transportation. So we had soldiers that had been mechanics. So they understand the ability of how to acquire vehicles without keys. Uh, and that was how we got our transportation to move around the airport. The airport street sweeper we acquired by the same means. So a 42 Alpha admin NCO would clear all the foreign debris or the FOD from where they were loading all the civilians. So they would come find us like, hey, we need to clear it. So that young E-5 maintained the flow of all the aircraft. But the one thing I do remember that, that stands out, the area we had, uh, the National Security Unit, um, which was a, a security element for the Afghan government, them and their families are the ones that flowed through our area. 
So we had about 30,000 of them go through. I remember the one time walking through, all the kids loved us because they were all, they were all leaving. Right. There's this little girl. I, I, she was three years old. Let's say she was definitely afraid of me. Uh, and everybody's giving me high fives. These kids are talking and her brother was kind of goating her. And then finally she just hauls off and punches me with this <laughs> high five. And I remember seeing her hours later and then she comes running up with a smile everywhere I've been between Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, like kids are kids. They just want to do kids stuff. And this was this little girl. But then on the contrast of that, I have a picture of one of the uh, technical trucks from the NSU. There's a pile of RPGs. And in the background, there's a uh, Disney princess blanket. And it's the contrast of a life that we can't really comprehend. And I remember a dad sleeping and the 10 year old boy had a Zam four and the little girl had like the giant JTAC radio. Right. And those are the things that I remember that, you know, uh, what my children have no idea and can't even comprehend of growing up uh, compared to the kids and the families that we saw as they came through our area and got evacuated out. My experience, you know, with Army National Guard units in Afghanistan, Iraq is just that incredible soldiers, but they have skill sets from their full-time jobs that we always need especially we live in austere conditions. So that I think that's just another incredible advantage of having the Army National Guard forward deploy with you is they solve problems. You know, that personnel specialist that had the ability to get that street sweeper operating to remove the foreign debris from the airfield, that might be the most valuable soldier during this deployment who kept the airflow coming in and out of there. So Jake, I like to end these podcasts asking senior leaders about what they read, what inspires them and what helps you sort of stay mentally fresh and focused as a commander. So are you a big reader? And if so, you know, what do you like to read? Yes. So uh, when I was at school of math, science, all of that reading, I realized when I came back from Fort Leavenworth and I was reading Klaus switch one night in bed, I needed to take a step back because nobody reads Klaus switch to go to bed. Right. <laughs> the time after that, you know, Anthony Lloyd, my war gone by, I miss it. So I actually did a book review on it. I can see the correlation between a soldier coming back from war and the issues in that book. The things you carry, I can't remember the individual's name, but he's from Worthington, Minnesota, where my wife is from. But then, honestly, I kind of got, uh, I'll say, burnt out by reading. And so I Googled military science fiction. And I think I bought every single paperback that was on that list. So John Salds, The Old Man's War, there's six books. And you can see the direct correlation of real life military implications, and it's just science fiction, right? I mean, there's not aliens, but it's the same concept. Right. John Haldeman, The Forever War. Uh, I think I've read all of Orson Scott Card, Ender's Games. James McDonough, The Defense of Hill 71. But I always said, is you just read something because it exercises your minds, regardless if it's a sports page, science fiction, a love novel that you pick up at the airport, whatever it may be, you're still reading and still exercising your mind. Yeah. As army leaders, we should be lifelong learners. So I love the fact that you have such a diverse library of things you like to read, depending upon where you are in your career and how much time you have available. Well, and my wife has her master's degree in reading. So in our house, I came home one day and I was like, what's this? Because our fireplace, and then we have our built-in bookshelves. One side was her reading list of all her stuff and then all my military reading. And she recolor-coordinated it by 
color versus by her stuff and my stuff. And I kind of sat there and uh, <laughs> stared at her like, I don't know if this is going to work. But having a reading teacher, there are a lot of books in our house. And more than once, both my kids have called us nerds because we just right. just read because we're like, we'll go sit outside and read a book. Jake, as I said earlier, we've been working for months to get you on the show. And you've just proven my instincts right. Thank you so much for telling your story of what you and your soldiers did leading up to and including the Afghanistan evacuation mission. Your soldiers have changed the trajectory of countless people by getting them out of Afghanistan with an opportunity to rebuild their lives. Thank you, Scott. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Army Matters is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission, educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and supporters of a strong national defense. Today's episode was hosted by Colonel Retired Scott Halstead and anchor hosted by Carrie Viral Hockeys. The producer and writer is Anthony Del Call, and supervising sound editor is Andy Bosnack. And Zinga Curry is the executive producer, and the senior producers are Carrie Viral Hockeys and LaSharon Duncan. Special thanks to Angela King, Angela Pupil, and Michelle Cabotaje for their help. Be sure to subscribe to Army Matters wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a review. As you know, we love seeing stars in the Army, especially if it comes in the form of a five-star review. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. I'm Sharon Duncan. Hope you have a great Army day. Hooah.